Hello, welcome to the Classical Music Pod. Today's episode, the final of the season, Sam talks to the composer and new collaborator, Eric Whitaker. They chat about the recent recording session they did with Voches 8 uh, and the album which has recently come out called Home. It's funny, isn't it, Tim, how luck is sometimes a, a matter of perspective. Mm. You know, if you're Rishi Sunak, the coronation is a piece of good luck. You're able to hide your terrible election results. Yes. But if you don't believe in the divine right of kings, mm. it's bad luck. About this time last year, Chris Moore, the wonderful baritone in Watchers 8, suffered a bit of bad luck. He caught COVID on a week when they were making a CD mm. with Perry Whittaker. That's a real shame. Uh, but that did mean a piece of good luck for me in that I got this phone call saying, uh, Sam, can you come in tomorrow morning and start recording this piece we've been working on? That's a hell of a story. Uh, it is a bit, I just, so I'm, I was at the time on the Watchers 8 Scholars Professional Development Scheme and had just finished a day doing a workshop with Emma Kirkby and then said bye to everybody. Mm. Really nice to see you. Cycle back up the hill, get this phone call uh, and the world drops out of my bottom because I'm a bit scared. But fortunately, I'd had some rehearsals and part of that scheme is standing next to people like Chris and Johnny Pacey, the other mm-hmm. bass, and seeing how they do their thing, how they record, where they put the microphones. So getting inside that sort of mindset that he has totally internalised uh, was really eye-opening for me and set me up to mm. cling on by my nails as we had this week of madness, making an album, doing a couple of performances with big eric with mr eric and i had set up this call with eric's people to Mm. interview him uh i don't think it had been passed on to him that it was going to be me and that we had a Mm. connection with this album so the first moment of the interview is him realizing that it's me (laughs) which is quite fun it's so joyful and uh our only moment of bad luck is that the zoom cuts out about two minutes before we were going to wrap up anyway Mm. Um, but hey lots of good luck to be thankful for hello hey dude how are you how are you doing man (laughs) yeah i'm all right (laughs) I didn't know this was going to be um, you. This is great. Did you not? Okay, oh, I wanted to say, might tell you. That's hysterical. Um, <laughs> spoiler. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
that's hysterical. This is the the truly the. I think this is the first time I've ever done this. Then when we basically interviewed, like, how do we make the album? Well, here's how we did it. That's yeah, hysterical. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, how are you doing? Is, I'm has good, it been a busy man. press schedule for you with this? Yeah, it, it was. It was okay. It was. It kind of got all turned upside down because I went to um, my wife got cast in this this role in Belgium. She's Belgian, so the wow. Flemish opera, which was all good, but we showed up kind of with a plan, and then <laughs> basically we had no help with childcare for two months. So I, I, I'm not complaining, but basically there was just no time for anything. So I did yep. a couple of things, but nothing nearly what I would normally do, you know, for for an album release. Yeah, and so the real world is just inescapable, isn't it? it? Truly like, inescapable. Is even. Even Ferret Whisker. It's, uh... <laughs> I, I don't remember. Do, do you have kids, Sam? I forget. No, no, no. Yeah. No. So... I've, I've got engaged since I saw you last. Oh, have That's you really? Fine. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks very much. All right. Well, if uh... if you do end up deciding to have kids, then you and I can have this conversation a, a year after they're born. It's. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure you hear it from everybody. It's. It's. There's really nothing like it, and it's. Mm. It's all encompassing. It's. It's a beautiful thing. But they always yeah. say long days and short years. That describes it perfectly. It's just, <laughs> just the time just disappears. Yeah, I mean, it's our. We've just had our record anniversary, or whatever. It was about thirteen months ago. Nice. I think we we're we we're making this. You're joining us to talk about Home, uh, which has just been released on Decca and features Vaches Eight, Chris Glynn on piano, and Emma Denton on cello. I think you'd worked with Chris before, hadn't you? Yeah, but many I don't times. know if you'd. Had you come across Emma or, or Vaches before in an actual let's collaborate capacity no so emma was brand new to me uh mm. and she if i remember correctly there were a couple of different cellists that you know it was all about scheduling and lining up and people that people oh, yeah. had worked with and they sent me a couple of different files to listen to and not knowing who they were mm. right and i remember i just heard emma's i said whoever this is what whatever is playing this <laughs> that's that is yeah because you remember she's just so musical it's uh, yeah, uh, yeah. There's like a depth of soul to the way she plays that that is um, that's striking, and so mm. it, so that was the first time with Emma. But then with Vachese, we've been for years sort of flirting back and forth with what could we do together. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I've been a super fan since I can remember, and then we we more or less had something figured out, and then COVID hit, and mm. and then it was just it was like a comedy of errors where. Uh, I was supposed to work with them in January of, of last year. Yeah. And everything was set. We was getting ready to get on a plane and everything. And then I got COVID and then Andrea got COVID. So I was like, nope, okay, uh, that's not happening. Yeah. And it, it just, just kept getting pushed back and back and back. And, and so finally, when we all saw each other, that was, that was the first time actually, too, that I'd even met anybody in person. Yeah. Yeah, I knew everyone's faces super well. But I, I never actually even sh- shook hands with anybody until that moment. Yeah, hey, we're bumping elbows at that point. Yeah, probably yeah still. that's right. <laughs> uh, and I think probably because of that schedule shuffling a little bit, it became the most intense week in the world, right? Where we sort of were doing two performances, recording a CD and a live broadcast in about five and a half days. Yeah, that's exactly right. When you see something like that coming up in your diary... I assume every week isn't like that. Otherwise, you know, you'd be... <laughs> I wish it was. Like, what do you prepare? How do you prepare? Do you sort of have a week lying down in anticipation? Are you going through the old scores? 
is there a process of like hype to get yourself uh, it's a, it's to an, boiling it's point? It's a super interesting question. Well, the the great the great advantage of being the composer of all of these pieces is there's zero mm. musical preparation. I mean, nothing. <laughs> like yeah. like I don't even. In fact, I don't even bring a score with me. I just assume somebody's going to give me mm. a score when I when I get there. And and you probably noticed most of it I'm conducting from memory anyway, except for those those long yeah. kind of intricate ones. And it's it's the funniest thing. I was thinking about this just the other day that that it's more than just that, well, I wrote it so I memorized it. It's that the pieces are so much a part of who I am that if I ever get mm. lost, you know, if I'm ever thinking what comes next, then literally what I do in my mind is think, well, what would I do? And then I just give yeah. the downbeat and that happens. It's the it's the funniest game that gets played. Like, <laughs> yep, that's that's what I would do is just the thing that just happened underneath my, my hands. So so there's no musical preparation whatsoever. And then when it comes to like the the intensity of the week, truly I wish every week were like that. It's yeah. I love being with my family, I love being with my friends, but there's nothing I love more than than just falling into this world that we're all making. And that, that we made over those yeah. those six days, it was so special, you know, where where the world disappears mm-hmm. except for this this thing that we're all building together. You you get close in a way that you can't. I don't I don't think you can in normal life. Mm, I think a good piece helps, and I uh, fortunately <laughs> yeah. brought a few with you. But you know that that level of intensity on something that feels a bit subpar is maybe overkill or something. Yeah, fair <laughs> like, enough. Fair, uh, yeah, but, if if if, um, if it's six days of something you don't want to be doing, then 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 maybe you're right. Um, that was really fascinating too, right? Is because the the piece itself is it's hyper intense, right? It's it's mm. I didn't really realize until we were all doing it. I'd done some other performances, but the the only other real big performance that I'd done of it was with the Master Chorale when when we premiered it yeah. a couple of years ago. And that was totally different because I was writing it, I was rewriting and rewriting during the rehearsal process. And so I had a right. funny experience with them where on the night of the premiere, I remember standing in front of them and then for the first time thinking, I've never even thought about how do you conduct this? Like it was the first time yeah. I conducted it, if you know what I mean. Like so so yeah. the first performance was really kind of white knuckle for me just because it was getting, okay, let's just make sure everybody stays together, if you know what I mean. Mm. So yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with Vulture 8, it was um, the intensity of the piece. We we really went there. Do you know what I mean? We had yeah. this this totally focused, concentrated time where we, that's all we did. You remember some of the conversations mm. we had while we were recording? It was, oh, yeah. it was so deep, so essential. I'm grateful for the way that it all worked out. I'm grateful that it all got slammed together, the performances and the, the live stream mm. and the recording itself. Otherwise, I don't think we would have captured that that thing. Yeah, and I think that there's something, when it's whatever that is, 10, 11 people in the room, everyone can just share their little personal bit or like their connection to whether it's cancer, loss, something, you know, maybe you can just interact on that level. Whereas when you've got 100 singers in front of you, 60, whatever it is, if everyone does that, then you've lost the whole rehearsal process. Yeah. And it doesn't, but that, um, yes, those interrelationships are so strong. And obviously, like, watchers, they know each other better than anyone. That connectivity is so high already. Yeah, that's, that um, is, it's, that's a really good point. It must have been striking for you to be coming in as as a guest and then seeing 
like you say, how, how open and vulnerable everyone is and how respectful everyone is of everyone mm. else's ideas and thoughts and opinions musically or, or philosophically. I was really impressed by that. Were you as well? Oh, massively. They feel very like they've settled into collaboration. They've all signed up to collaborate rather than, you know, often if you gather a group of singers together, it's really fighting about, I want to be in charge yeah, rather yeah. than uh, sharing it. So, I mean, you were in many ways in charge, but it's a different kind of in charge, right? So the, and I know that you think about leadership a lot. And was that a unprecedented kind of leadership role for you? Had you done stuff like that before? Huh. Where you're working with a group that don't usually have a conductor? Yeah, I don't, th I don't think I've ever worked with a group that normally doesn't have a conductor. So, hmm. uh, yeah, it's another great question because I, I do think about leadership a lot. And I wasn't sure exactly what to expect. I mean, truly, I wasn't sure what I was going to be bringing to the table, if you know what I mean, right? Other yeah. than, okay, I wrote the piece, so I have a, an idea of the way these things sound in my mind. And here's the intention mm. behind the writing, and maybe that helps the performers. But you and I both know that Vochese could do a killer performance of this, and I could be on the other side of the world, you know? It, it, so... <laughs> So I, I really did think, like, what is my role in this? But interestingly enough, I found that that almost immediately I actually was conducting them. You know, as a singer, it all, it all comes down to breath, right? You take a breath, mm. and singers will either breathe the way they're going to breathe and then make the sound they're going to make the sound they're going to make or they breathe with you and it's not just they breathe in the same tempo or the same dynamic, they breathe with the same intention, right? There's there's yeah. that magical thing that happens. And it was maybe three minutes in before I realized, oh my God, I'm basically driving the, the, the boat here, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But, but yeah. then it's then in the most beautiful way, it reminds me a lot of working with a very good professional orchestra where you're driving the boat, but they're, it, it feels more like riding a horse that mm. you've got the reins. And so you can gently move to the left, gently to the right, but they're doing all the running. Right, the the horses. It's, yeah. it's just it's it's its own machine, and it's it's going forward, sort of regardless of whether you want it to or not. And then your job is just to surf a little bit, just push, pull. It's very mm. gentle, and I'd love to think that, especially with what you say, from the outside. You know, I look back at those videos. From the outside, you can't mm. really tell who's doing what. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that we're all yeah. just dancing together. I don't know if you felt that as a singer. I think for me, it was, especially someone who does mostly sing with a conductor, I found it really helpful to have that permission from mm. you. You'd sort of show that like the invitation, we're going this way. And then I'm like, okay, we're, we're going that way. Invitation is a beautiful way to describe it. I've often thought that what I bring to the British choral scene that might be different than what they normally experience is how overjoyed I am, like at the at the sound that's coming <laughs> back at me. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like most of the time yeah. I'm just on the, on the verge of tears and I just can't believe how beautiful and sophisticated and deep the singing is. And my experience has been that most British choristers don't get that kind of feedback very often. If you know, no, I think that is fair, right? That is absolutely. And so, so I've always thought, like, like I love to use the word the invitation. That half my job is just to stand in front of a group of these super high level singers and just, just be vulnerable enough to let them see the effect that it's having on me, because then that's an invitation. Yeah. I would think for the singers to be like, oh, I can, I Give can let more. go. I can sing. This, you know, like I can actually just do what I've been training my entire life to do. Um, for me, it's just a beautiful experience to stand in front of that and be receiving all of that, if, if you know what mm, I mean. I do, yeah. And just, again, thinking a little bit on leadership, are there, if that's kind of your goal, is to be that vulnerable, inviter, sort of joyful person, are there red flags? I mean, obviously, sort of being furious about it all and all that kind of stuff would be a red flag. But are there other things that are maybe more, that would go under the radar a little bit that you try to avoid in your you're leading Mm. well it depends it really depends on the group right so so if Mm. i'm if i'm working with a group like for instance just a a couple of weeks ago i conducted several hundred singers amateur singers who had never met before so they'd prepared in the wild you know some of them as groups smaller groups (laughs) but then they came together and basically we had two days to put together a, a performance that we would give in lincoln center okay so in that case, then I know that my role as a leader has to be very strong in that mm-hmm. not, not only am I, not only am I motivating the beat, the sound, but also I have a very limited amount of time in order to get the entire group to feel like a group. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So there's a, there's a certain kind of, I guess, a, a kind of a strength of leadership. I, I always like to think of myself as uh, that instead of strong, which which I think implies sort of forceful, I like to mm. think more just as confident and and floating, so that there's this yeah. this sense it, from everybody in the room, like, well, okay, that guy seems to know what's going on, so let, let's do, yeah. you know, even if I don't, but but then let's do that with with a group like Vultures Eight, then the 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 group is already. I'm not doing any of that work. Do you know what I mean? There's there's no sense yeah. of... And so on top of that, I, I will say this, is that there's this combined musical intelligence amongst the group that is far, far greater than my own. It's instantly apparent. And so hmm. I would be doing a massive disservice if I didn't open myself to that. And so there's yeah. this, the dance that goes on. It's very subtle I find but if I start to push something right or pull or shape something and the group collectively doesn't really want to do that then in that moment I surrender my Mm. old version of thinking this is how it needs to be and actually I'm going to go with the collective wisdom of the group right now because it's it's deeper than mine they're 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 pulling on influences and ideas that are yeah, or greater. And then what I hope then is communicated to the singers is this kind of trust. Like, mm. yes, do do your thing. I love that. Let's let's find this new thing. 
yeah, I, I think I think that's how it works. I've never really talked out loud about this. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting to hear. I mean, also because it is intangible to try and put it into words is such a hard thing. As with, I mean, pretty much everything that you're dealing with on this disc. Maybe you could just give us a little introduction to the Sacred Veil for those who aren't aware of the arc that it goes through in, in not just uh, your life, but I mean, obviously, Anthony Silvestri, who has written some of the libretto, and then Julie, his wife, who wrote uh, some of the libretto as well. That's right. Um, could you just sort of, what's the what's the subject matter? Yeah, the, so the, the general idea is that Tony and I have been best friends for 32 years now. 33 years, my God. We met in college choir. He was a tenor, I was a bass. And 10 years into our our friendship, I asked him to write. He'd never written poetry before. I asked him to make a Latin translation. He's a, he's a historian, so but also a Latin and Greek scholar. So I asked him to make a Latin translation of a small poem that I had that then became a piece called Lux Aurumque, Light and Gold. So that was our first foray. And then immediately afterwards, uh, I, I, two things happened. One, I asked him to replace the text to sleep, what, what is now sleep. It was originally a poem by Robert Frost, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. And it got mm. all the way to the publication process. And the publisher said, no, you don't have permission. So I asked Tony to without changing a note of music, can you write me a poem to replace wow. this iconic poem? And Tony knocked it out of the park and he wrote that. And then I was given this commission by the American Choral Directors Association, which is the dream commission because it's going to be premiered in front of like 7,000 choral directors. So you can, you can get really <laughs> geeky and really deep. And I've been sitting on this yeah. title for years, uh, just, just the name of a piece, Leonardo Dreams of His Flying Machine. And I mm. called up Tony and said, okay, let's make this thing. And then together we crafted this crazy piece and it's got you know Leonardo's own writings. Anyway, so by year 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, we were really working together as poet and, yeah. and composer. So it wasn't just a, a deep friendship, it was a deep uh, creative collaboration. Just a few years after that, Tony's wife, Julie, who I knew very well, uh, died from ovarian cancer. She was 35 years old. She left behind two kids, seven and three. And you can imagine it just, it was an atom bomb in Tony's life. Such yeah. an atom bomb that he left Los Angeles where he was living, left his job as teacher, went, moved to the middle of America, to Kansas, so that he could be closer to family, so they could help raised the kids, got a new teaching job, like like really transformed his life in order to to stand up and do what needed to be done. And I encouraged him to write about it for years and years and years. And then finally he 
I guess it's six years ago now, he, he handed me what is now the first movement, but just a single poem and didn't say anything mm -hmm. about it even. But I looked at it and read it and saw it as an invitation and, and yeah. said, okay, if you're ready to do this, let's make this whole piece. The very brief description of the piece is that it basically tells from the moment that Tony and Julie met, you get to meet both of them. And then the moment they fell in love, the, their ache and struggle to conceive a child, the child being born, Julie's diagnosis, then Julie's real uh, struggles with cancer, and then uh, the moment of her death, and then finally a kind of benediction at the end. It's 12 movements long. Uh, thank you for summarizing that. I just was thinking whilst you were saying all of it, that, yeah, as someone obviously who cares about these people so much, now you've recorded it, you have to talk about this over and over again. <laughs> and I mean, does that, not let alone the writing the piece, uh, but also just the going out and telling people this story that you know, has a, that you are bound to and connected. It's not just a story over there about some people that is also, you know, that's a very sad thing. It's also, you know, you're bound into that. Is that all right? Are you okay with that, doing that regularly? Again, Sam, it's you're the only person to ask this question. Um, it, it, in my life in general, I try to always be present. I try to never, never ever have a talking point, if you will. And I mean that in a yeah. grand way. So even when I'm making music, for instance, the moment I feel like I'm on autopilot, I'll... I'll I'll mix, I'll just change. I, I want to be present. And the challenge with telling this story is that, that there are the, the points of the story as if you're telling it, but as you say, it's very, very real. And even as I was telling it to you now, there's moments that just catch me off guard that I'm, t I'm, it's like, I've, I've accessed this little crack inside. Sometimes they're unexpected mm. and it's, it, it's, it's very, very real. Tony said this beautiful, beautiful thing, which I, th I think is true is that, and we tried to paint that in the music, is that, that the movie version of grief is that you heal and you, you go on. But actually those who have experienced true grief know that, no, now you, at best you've got a massive scar, but mm. probably more than likely you've got an open wound and that's just, that's just you now. That's part of your journey. You've got this wound yeah. for the rest of your life. Now, you can imagine my wound is nothing compared to what Tony went through. Hmm. But even when I was saying to you, I knew Julie well, I just had this flood of memories of this person I knew, this, this, this woman that I knew, and, and the way she died was so unjust yeah. for who she was. Hmm. And, it's, and so it's, it's difficult to... It's difficult to reaccess. I can tell yeah. you, my God, when we were recording the album, there was just moment after moment that you remember when we when we sing in magnetic poetry when um, it's building the and hair, building and the, the, the hair, the, yeah, Is it a line about the hair. No, that no, that one, my God, oh, that sorry. one, that one is the third rail. That that one, I just I, every time it brings. But but this is a moment that is unexpected for me that she sings the delirious girl the delirious girl, and then we sing woman goddess, right? And yeah. it just, it sort of explodes open. It's like this crash of waves against the, uh, against the shore. 
and it's the kind of moment that feels musically it's 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 exalted and and alive and triumphant and somehow when we did that when we did that live that's the moment that hit me like an arrow in the soul because this is a person who who lived and wanted and desired and 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 dreamed and and breathed and all of that is encompassed in that that moment you know that's who she is she wrote those words about herself yeah. and some somehow just knowing then that the, the way the peace unfolds and maybe the way life unfolds that it's just it's just this wheel of fate and you can fight it you can push against it you can rail against it you can accept it it doesn't matter it's just going to happen there's something so beautifully tragic about that and and mm. and and that's the kind of moment that i was totally unprepared for do you know what i mean like just yeah. oh oh my god that's right that's that's yeah The other bits of text, I mean, there's there's some really wonderful words in this that I think people will never hear anywhere else and ideas. But one of the things you probably won't hear anywhere else is the medical terminology. Mm. And I think it felt like it drew stuff out of you as a composer that I hadn't heard lots of in your writing before. That sort of um, almost Dr. Atomic, Janacek-y speech rhythm <laughs> uh, recitation. But it, it really got those bits of text across was it important for you that the audience hears those hears that text clearly especially yeah that's it's that's a super interesting question so i, I remember when i was curating the, the different poems with tony that was a movement that he didn't really write in that he he was telling me the story and i remember he he said you know you sit down in the room and you hear those words that you never want to hear i'm afraid we found something and i remember thinking that's it that's the, that's actually all the text that is needed. That says because also when I hear that I hear I'm afraid we found something. What I hear is I'm afraid, which is the yeah. final words right to get to. It's 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 got to be the worst moment in a person's life when they when they hear that news. We're amongst the worst. But then I asked Tony to send me the the medical record. I think mostly because I was curious. I'm not sure that I I wanted to set it, but I wanted to fill my mind with what what does it look like and what struck me immediately was how how much of it is in greek and latin you know it's mm. it's medical speech yeah classic choral language as well that's right yeah and and yeah but even more so it seems weirdly sacred like yeah. like when you when you read it i mean it's hyper clinical which is already just brutal because you're talking about a person and their deepest fears and then you're saying it in the most clinical way, which is what a doctor and a scientist should do, right? Is, is here's, hmm. we're just going to present you with this information. But I remember then reading it, even just reading it, I understood maybe half of it, you know, oolongology. Hmm. I have no idea what these words are. And I remember thinking that in the room, 
when you're being told this, when a doctor is saying these words to you, it must sound like a temple priest sort of incanting like like the word of God, but that mm. you can't understand, Fate. Yeah. right? So so it's yeah. most of it is just is just a wall of sound. It's just coming at you, and you you can't really. But then, very intentionally, the way that I said it was that as the thing climaxed, and it's the the realization that what all of these things that are being detailed to you to your face, you're being told, "I'm afraid we found something," and then all of these things. At the very least, you know this can't be good, right? This, this, <laughs> yeah. this can't be. This, oh, okay. I understood a little bit, a little bit of that. But then we end with that word over and over and over: metastases. And it doesn't matter if you know a scrap of of Latin or Greek; you know what metastasis means. And I can imagine sitting in that room, and it's just noise, 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 and then you hear the word metastasis, and that's mm. that's the body blow. So when I was setting it, that's, that's the effect that I wanted it to have was this sense of just this, this temple priest intoning in this very sterile way your fate and you not understanding much of it, but then getting to the part where, oh, I absolutely understand. <laughs> now, now that's very clear to me, the stakes. Yeah. Is this the first time you've set your own words? Um, I can't remember seeing anything by you that is... So I'll I'll tell you a funny story. So um, (laughs) I don't talk about this very much, but um, uh, so we talked about Luke's Arumque. So Tony Tony translated this English poem by Edward Esch into... Edward Esch is my my pen name. It's my nom de guerre. And so (laughs) Edward Esch has actually written several poems oh has he yeah right he's, he's yeah. published Tell he's a guy. published poet but very few people know it's me i i discovered early on that if people knew i'd written the text they they punch harder they don't take it as seriously i don't know somehow some composers yeah. are supposed to, they're supposed to compose yeah, and can... poets are supposed to poet and 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 so all i did was just make a simple name change um yeah. what's funny That's then funny, is but... i sort of named my son my son's name is esh edward whitaker so the poet is Edward Esch, and then he's Esch Edward Whitaker. So it, it it all runs in the family. So occasionally now people are meeting my son and hearing his name and going, wait a minute. Is Prodigy. That- <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it's the first time publicly that I've come out and said, yeah, I wrote these words. With the, I mean, the way you describe Tony and that sort of heightened Ovidian language is really wonderful and speaks to your friendship in the those moments when you're describing him at the beginning. Mm. But then also the the Child of Wonder movement as well. I suppose, yeah, we've been talking a bit about the sort of grieving and the scarring, but you've really had to confront and think about death in a way that I suppose most of us spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid. Has that process evolved for you do you in the Stephen Colbert questionnaire he asks people what do you think happens when we die and I mean has you don't have to tell me what you think happens but sort of has it changed has it evolved have you clarified something for yourself 
Sorry, just drop a little light one in there as no, well. No, it's, it's, it's a three <laughs> martini question. This, it's a, it's, it's the question, right? This is yeah. This, this is the question everyone's been asking for, for since the dawn of time. Well, first, if if I can backtrack for a moment, the the two mm. poems that I wrote, I wrote only because I felt that Tony would be unable to say this about himself. That yeah. there's that I think it's the. 10th movement no the ninth movement um where one last breath and then finally child of wonder and both in both of those first in in the ninth movement that was about seeing tony as a hero and i he's what he's doing is heroic and i knew he could never write about himself as a hero no matter how much i prompted him so i did that very intentionally what i did in both movements then the in the, the the final benediction which is just my best attempt at giving a path to peace to my friend, I guess, I, 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 mm. is they're both, both poems are loaded with quotes from poetry that Tony wrote in previous pieces that we'd written together. So for instance, oh, wow. in the movement nine, right before it really gets bad, I wrote, uh, he makes a sacred vow that every loved one keeps. He steals himself takes one last breath and leaps. So he steals himself, takes one last breath and leaps are the final lines of Leonardo dreams of his flying machine. It's literally a quote and that's super intentional so that even if nobody knows this, Tony is sitting in the audience and hears that and he knows how deep those words go. And then in the final movement in the, in child of wonder, it's loaded with all of these different references to pieces that we've written. So even child of soft surrender, child of sleep. So surrender is a word that is taken directly from sleep. Sleep itself comes from sleep. Mm. There's um, yeah. child of, of light, child of night. These two and the idea of light being luxurumque and night being noxurumque. These two pieces that we wrote together. His favorite piece of mine that, that I've ever written is, isn't his poetry. It's a piece called A Boy and a Girl. Oh, yeah. A boy and a girl begins with the words um, stretched out on the grass, a boy and a girl. And so the final lines of Child of Wonder are stretched on ocean waves of endless foam. Welcome home, my child. Welcome home. So it's loaded with all of these connections between the two of us and, and meaning that was really meant only for him. So then if I can go back to your your. Uh, your Stephen Colbert question. <laughs> the big question. I'm I'm not a Christian, and I don't think I'm a I'm not a religious person. There's there's no religious dogma I've yet seen that I feel enough evidence to believe this is what happens after I die. Hmm. I'd like to think of myself, at least the way I think, as a scientist, which is that I'm I'm in the best possible way I'm completely open to new evidence. And I'm absolutely mm. convinced that what we now know and what we think we know is, is a sliver of a sliver of a sliver, the way reality actually works. Even at the deepest level of physics and math that I don't even have the language to understand. I think that there's still a lot left to learn and understand about the way. All of that is, is a way of saying, I don't know what happens when we yeah, die, I mean, yeah. right? I, I, I literally don't know, <laughs> but, but I actually take incredible comfort in that. I love that I mm. don't know. So it seems to me, it seems to me 
the grandest of adventures. What I would like to think happens, what I would, because there's so much anecdotal evidence about this, is that right before you die, your, your brain does some sort of dump where, you know, people say they have their life flash before their eyes. Yeah. And I would like to think that that happens, that just at the moment of death, for whatever reason, your brain just, just downloads it. And how beautiful to look back at the entire thing. Just because I also imagine that that moment to us seems to pass briefly to watching someone die, but that the moment that someone dies, I imagine lasts a long, long, long time. That, that the perception of time, maybe you live your entire life again. I don't know. Maybe you live it over and over mm. and over again. Maybe that's what the poetry of heaven and hell is, is that, that in that moment, that, that moment lasts perceived in your consciousness for eternity. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily ready to find out today, but I'm, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to experiencing it. I, I think it will uh -huh. be a, a beautiful thing. It's cool, isn't it? Even though the Zoom cut us off, I think I still managed to get most of the questions that I didn't already know the answer to mm. in. So uh, there are some things that I know are like good anecdotes he tells mm. where he'll mention how like the seal lullaby was going to be for a DreamWorks movie that never got made and like Stephen Sondheim helped him mm. get that gig and then eventually they make Kung Fu Panda and it's like, ha ha ha, it's mm. a good anecdote. I didn't previously know what he thought was going to happen when we all die. Or uh, even actually some of the quotations that were in Child of Wonder and other movements mm. that he was talking about. I've sung that piece to, to absolute pieces and um, I didn't know that. Didn't so know there's still stuff. little fresh nuggets dropping that out. That was a nice anecdote. Things that I picked up and I thought were interesting. I loved that he turned up and didn't have a score. Yeah. <laughs> That's a wonderful anecdote. Um, and then I... what first struck me as being profound was this idea of vulnerability in mm. the professional music making workplace because not being privy to many uh, rooms such as that one I always think of it in my head as you turn up you do the job and you go home yeah I think often that be professional stuff gets mm. reduced to turn up 20 minutes early and reply to emails fast mm. and shake hands with people and say please and thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think working with the Vultures guys on this project in particular and with Eric, it reminded me that your ideals can be more than that of professionalism. And actually, mm. you need to enter those rooms with your creativity open, with your mm -hmm. vulnerability, if possible, uh, mm. there so that 
And that's, a, that's the professional skill, is that you turn up every day open and creative, mm. uh, rather than just when you feel like it, whatever. Okay, yeah. And yet, and I challenged you about this earlier, because you've just been singing on some film soundtrack stuff, yeah. which is a bit more turn up, do the job. Yeah. And yet, you still like to think that you have the same fun or openness or vulnerability, but it's different. I think it's a different thing. that is maybe more of a mercenary thing because there's mm. uh, a lot of people involved and the red light is on and everyone's paid for studio time. Mm. It's got to be pretty fast moving. Mm. But actually the composers, the people who are leading those sessions are still playing with creative ideas and saying, oh, but what if we didn't like this? Mm. Or, what if, or at least I think the best people are. Mm. Um, what if we change the vowel there? What if we put a consonant on the front? What if... Um, and then it's the job of all the singers performers to suddenly pivot mm. and have that creative mindset where it's like okay yeah yeah uh, i'll i'll imagine that for you and yes. make it happen so it's the same ideal but it's not necessarily the same manifestation yeah and that's what we were often frustrated with in other musical settings is where people's ideal gets reduced yeah to a don't make a mistake or yeah. just turn up and get it right and go home. Yeah. Because obviously there are situations where realistically that's a great job. But if that's your ideal, when you're given a week with a fantastic yeah. vocal ensemble and a fantastic piece and a composer and all that, everything that you know you could possibly want, you haven't got anywhere to go. Yeah. So there's no stretch. There's yeah. you know you've got to have that platonic mm. cloud floating up somewhere to Absolutely. try and reach. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. While we're on vulnerability, I loved what he said about him being vulnerable enough for you, the choir, to see uh, the effect that you're having on him mm. conducting. That's a really lovely. And, and linked to that idea is what he said about um, the group's collective musical intelligence being greater than his own. So it's so much more of a give and take thing for him as a conductor. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think it takes someone of great security mm. to acknowledge that uh, you've got creative ideas coming back at you mm. and that they might be better than yours mm. again it's an ideal and it's one that uh, i'd like to aspire towards rather than more of a didactic approach I think. yes it also you know not to get too meta but his vulnerability on mic mm. in the interview scenario enabled you i think to ask perhaps more personal maybe not personal but more interrogating questions than you might have expected to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I.e. what happens when you die. <laughs> yeah, there's not many guests we've had on that I would have asked that to. And uh, to go meta again, that sort of description he used of the horse. Mm, um, it's a lovely riding the horse. It felt like in the moment that invitation was there mm. for me to ask those questions. There was scope. Mm. Uh, the relationship, the interview had reached that point. We've had guests on before where they can sort of manage an interview. They might be fun and giggly and we throw those games in and all that kind of mm. stuff to just, again, take them off the talking points. Mm. But maybe they've got their defences up and if you ask them a question they don't want to answer, suddenly they've steered you off with a joke mm. or a double entendre or, you know, ha ha mm. And then there are some people who are just going to stick to the talking points mm. and that's hard work for us and we have to do some fun and games. But it's with creative him, editing. Yeah, he was just from the get-go in that, present tense as you were saying like doesn't what he doesn't want to be on a talking point if he finds he's on one he's gonna try and even if it takes a bit of rambling he's gonna get himself mm. to an idea that he really is having mm. in that moment yes Classic.
classical music pod. There, there are some other things that we didn't talk about so much. Uh, like I would have loved to just hear him rave about Barney Smith, who is the mm. the head honcho at Vultures Eight and was running the sessions uh, in terms of as a producer. Was he singing as well? Singing this incredibly hard piece, running the camera rig, and like we would, we'd all go home at eleven o'clock at night, and then come in at ten o'clock the next morning, and he'd present us with, oh, here's some videos I mocked up of what it will look like when it goes on YouTube, or here's here's some stuff you do reviews. Like, when are you sleeping? Yeah. And like his stamina and skill set are just very inspiring to be around. And he's a founder of what you say. Yeah. So him and say. his brother Paul. Yeah. Um, but just I would love to have heard Eric say some of that stuff because i think um mm. he found it you know an inspiring energy to be around as well from that mm. from the group and uh yeah like from my perspective it's one of the defining musical weeks of my life mm. uh, that is it's new frontiers right absolutely what's well, beautiful album and i do encourage those who haven't listened to it yet to go to your nearest hmv <laughs> Which has just reopened on Oxford Street. Has it? Yeah. Oh, good news story. There you go. Finish! Hey, last uh, episode of the current season. Yeah. Good season. Hell of a season. Anna, throws to tear. Ella Taylor. Uh, Caroline Shaw. Oh, Caroline. She Caroline, was lovely just Caroline blissful. Shaw. We've had some Lord of the Rings moments, some Hans Zimmer some moments. Hans Zimmer moments, some Batman, uh, uh, the Banshees of East Dulwich. Oh. Yeah, we'll be back. It's all been there. Probably autumn. So, yes. until then, enjoy the prom season. Yeah, go read the guide. Go Tends read the prom guide. Very hard guide. on it. Thank you for that plug. Classical music.